the bricks must be thinking to themselves, like, no more democracies. No more democracies. Only autocracies get in the bricks because they put on this massive show in July, August. Argentina is now a part of our alliance, which, you know, I'm still kind of murky on exactly what the BRICS is supposed to represent, and I suspect that they're not even clear. Because I'll never forget that obscure press conference that Sergei Lavrov gave during it when he said to simply call this a trade alliance is to not appreciate, to paraphrase him, its political significance. Of course, it was in their interest, and still is, to play up the significance of the BRICS. So maybe that was just Sergei Lavrov. But I was thinking to myself, like, they must be saying to themselves, no more democracies, because it's been less than six months. And now, I mean, here it is, this Reuters article, China warns Argentina that severing ties would be a, quote, serious mistake. This is Ryan Wu and Ethan Wang at Reuters. And just to give you a couple of lines here, China said on Tuesday it would be a serious mistake if Argentina were to cut ties after the weekend presidential election victory in the South American country of a right-wing libertarian who has said he will not deal with communists. Argentinian president-elect Javier Milei has criticized China as well as Brazil, which are among his country's most important trading partners. A few months ago, Milei even likened the Chinese government to a, quote, assassin, end quote, and said the people of China were, quote, not free, end quote. Now, of course... Argentina is not formally in the BRICS yet, as far as I understand. I think that was going to be a January occurrence. Maybe, I don't know if it was January 1st, but, you know, in the new year, it was going to be formalized. So pretty interesting from that respect. And you know what else? Of course, we're dealing in mining here. And hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. We deal in mining here. So what does it mean for us? And you know what the first thing that crossed my mind was? Maybe some of you thought the same thing. Pasqualama. Pasqualama is this barrack gold project that hit a wall. It straddles the border of Argentina and Chile. And it is basically, from my understanding, a mountain of gold and silver. And this orphaned project may now be in contention, which is incredibly interesting from a barrack gold perspective. And we should also be paying attention to companies with projects in Argentina. And let me just put flesh on the bone here, because I was looking at this other headline that came out. This is on oilprice.com. Oil giant YPF surges 40% after outsider wins Argentinian presidential election. So clearly the market is saying, despite this guy's, you know, fairly outlandish statements cutting off China, cutting off Brazil. Nevertheless, it sounds like it's good for the oil business from a market perspective. At least that is the initial perception. So what does that mean for mining companies in Argentina? What does it mean for Barrick Gold? What does it mean for Pasqualama? That is my question. Again, a massive gold project on the border of Chile and Argentina. And my impression was the problems were on the Argentinian side because there were a little bit of rumblings that I saw in the news, as far as I remember, that on the Chilean side, there was a little bit of movement. So pretty interesting from a mining perspective. I mean, as a libertarian candidate who won, I mean, I was trying to think like, when was the last time, at least in my lifetime, that we actually had a, what you might call a legit libertarian running a country, and the closest I could come up with was one of the biggest budget busters of all time, Ronald Reagan. I mean, he had, one could argue, with all of his, you know, frankly, anti-government rhetoric. I mean, there was a libertarian streak, shall we say, in Reagan, but this seems to be a whole other order of business. I don't know if I'd call it more ideological. I haven't been following closely enough. But incredibly interesting development here. You know, reshuffling the deck, shall we say, one could argue to a certain degree of global politics. Maybe that's overstating it, but there has been a reshuffling of the deck. The story has changed. 
Now, it doesn't necessarily change the major trajectories of where things are going, but the story has changed. As Heraclitus says, the sun is new each day, and indeed it is, my friends. It's one of my favorite sayings of all time. And so here we have a wonderful show for you here today. We have the mayor of Timmins, Michelle Boileau, as well as Julie Jonka, executive director at the Local Workforce Planning Board. And they are going to discuss what is going on in Timmins. And it sounds like there is all sorts of opportunity for people to really live a pretty nice life if you live in Timmins. There's an airport, there are the arts, and a whole bunch of good jobs in the mining industry. So something to pay attention to, and that is coming up in our CEO Spotlight. And also, John DeMaio of Graphics Technologies, a deep dive on graphite. And we've been discussing the critical minerals in depth here for weeks and months. And so I throw some of my most challenging questions for me, unanswered questions uh, to John DeMaio, and he does a pretty good job of answering them. And, you know, I'm definitely, as I was saying in the previous weeks, like I'm somewhat skeptical that we have the metal to achieve a green transition. And I presented that question to John, and I have to say I was quite impressed with his answer in the sense that, as he was saying, like he's been involved in this energy transition before it was called that, And from his perspective, it is the best shot we have. We've never had people on board as much as we do on making a transition away from fossil fuels. It is the best we have, and we simply have to make the best of it as we go along. We do not have all of the answers now, but we simply have to go with the best that we have. And what I liked about that answer is it seemed kind of pragmatic rather than being an ideological answer. So John DeMaio uh, gives us a great education and clarification on what is happening with graphite. Of course, China has taken what you might call the first steps towards what could be a restriction of graphite exports, not formally restricting them yet, but you might say the first escalation towards that possibility. And so John DeMaio explains to us what that means and why we should care and what the impacts could be. So much to look forward to this episode, as well as fascinating news stories and more. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Michelle Boileau, Mayor of Timmins, and Julie Jonka, Executive Director at the Local Workforce Planning Board for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome Michelle Boileau, Mayor of Timmins, and Julie Jonka, Executive Director at the Local Workforce Planning Board to the Northern Miner Podcast. Julie and Michelle, welcome. Thanks for having us. Well, it's great to have you. It's not every day that we have the mayor of a city on our podcast here, so it is exciting in that regard. Michelle, do you want to start us off here? What is going on in Timmins in regard to mining? Well, it's quite exciting to talk about what's happening in the mining sector and specifically in the region. Of course, mining is at the heart of not only the city of Timmins, but the region. Our communities were, were founded because of uh, mining exploration. And the city is, uh, as we say, the city with the heart of gold because it was founded on gold mining. And so this isn't anything new to Timmins and to the area. We've been mining here for forever and we continue to. But what's really exciting is the potential for the mining industry in the area going forward. We're seeing a bit of a shift in the industry. You know, our big mining operations are now coming to the area to explore for critical minerals and they're being successful in those exploration projects. And so there are a few operations that are set to come online in the area in the coming years that will be really positive for our community and for the surrounding area. Indeed. And it is a very topical conversation around the world these days of where we're going to get these critical minerals. So you're mentioning gold before in Timmins. What other metals are people focusing on near Timmins? So near Timmins, definitely nickel. But of course, there are many other things that we're we're finding in the area and that we're realizing we'll be able to extract. But nickel is, I think, the next main mineral that we'll be going after. And what, like I said, is 
exciting about nickel exploration in the area is that for so long we were dependent on the price of, of course, the price of gold as a commodity, and it tends to be more boom and bust than other commodities, whereas nickel would be a lot more stable. And so we would see less of that boom and bust type of cycle in the economy in the area, and we'd see a much more stable, sustainable commodity being extracted here. So it's really positive for the region. Excellent. And just before I move on to Julie, uh, is there also plans for processing or is it more right now you guys are focused on, say, like mining companies and extraction? Yes, uh, there are definitely uh, plans for processing in the area as well. That's really what will make most of these projects feasible is if they could do at least one, if not two steps of the processing in the area before shipping the materials outwards to the rest of the world, meaning that we'll really need to infuse our, our labor force here. Excellent. And Julie, yeah, I'll turn over to you on that front. I mean, you're executive director at the local workforce planning board. So what is the situation? I guess another way of framing it, like what is the opportunity here uh, in terms of workers and in terms of Timmins and the mining industry? Well, I would say more jobs than there are people to fill them. So great opportunities available in, in, in a variety of occupations from trades to senior management to technical positions, to financial, human resources, you name it. There's opportunities and there will be more. Like many areas of the province and of the country, we have an aging workforce. So more opportunities will become available for any young professionals or any professionals who want to establish intimates. A recent marketing campaign promoting youth in mining highlighted how, I guess, one of the draws for them to consider mining is the quality of life that we have in Timmins and in the region. So that's important to folks. And also, I think with the up and coming electrification, automation, all of the new technology that's there, it's an exciting time to consider mining because that's going to open up a whole other range of employment opportunities using technology. But definitely when we look at the numbers alone, there are a lot of opportunities for anyone and everyone who who can and wants to consider mining. Add to that, we need to train workers for mining and we're fortunate in that in Timmins, there are two post-secondary institutions that do have that capacity to train for those opportunities that are available here in Timmins as well. And hopefully people not only come to learn, but to stay and live in the community as well. Just to follow up on that then, like to what extent does Timmins need workers? Like I assume they'd probably like the mining industry, it's a major problem where there's not enough young talent. So is this a problem in a sense or an issue now, or is this something that you see coming? And so you're kind of taking action now in order to basically address what you see as a potential problem, or is it already an issue? Well, there's already a lot of opportunities uh, because of the growth that's happening, but we forecast into the future. And there's also a whole other range of opportunities that will become available because of the aging workforce. But just on growth alone and a little bit of retirements, but mostly on growth, we reached out to a handful of companies last summer in 2022, asking what their needs would be by 2026. Seven and those 12 companies alone were looking at added 1,729 workers, and a good chunk of those 1,454 were to accommodate growth. So there definitely is growth. And from the other side that we look at is the opportunities that will become available as people retire, as the older generation of uh, workers retire. So beyond promoting to our youth, which is something that we've done, I think the attraction strategies like the one that the city of Timmins is undertaking is essential because just keeping our own won't suffice in the future. We do need to promote those opportunities to folks who may be looking for the best place in the world where to settle and work and live. Yeah, if I could just add to that question about the need and if it's current or just anticipated, what Julie was referring to was really among the mining companies in the area that were surveyed. But to be included in that number would be the workforce needed for the growing mining supply and service yeah. sector. So all of those companies that are supporting the big mining operations in the area as well as the clean tech industry. There's been growing interest from clean tech investors who want to come to the area to support, again, those mining operations as they, they endeavor to have net zero carbon operations. There's really a lot of new opportunity and diversified opportunity for people looking to work, um, you know, maybe not so directly, but to work with it, the mining sector. Okay, perfect. And Maybe if you could, Michelle, could you illustrate a bit more what the opportunity actually is for a potential, you know, maybe you have a recent grad from mining engineering. Why should they move to Timmins? What, what will they find? Yeah, 
we talked about the career opportunity, the professional opportunity, but yes, what's unique about Timmins is the opportunity for a quality of life that we don't find in the bigger city centers. So what's nice about Timmins being a smaller city is that we have a lot of the amenities that people would be looking for in terms of entertainment and recreation. However, we also have, you know, just a lot of space, a lot of access to the outdoors, to nature, which is a lot of fun. So with an airport, with direct flights, within an hour and a half, you could, you know, be in Toronto and, and enjoy everything that the, the bigger cities like Toronto's have to offer. Again, within an hour and a half, you could escape to Northern Ontario, you know, where the cost of living is more affordable, the homes that you could get for a fraction of the price of what you would be, uh, you'd be looking at in bigger urban centers, you know, they're just beautiful and spacious. And there's a lot of opportunity for a nice balanced uh, lifestyle here in the city of Timmins. Okay, excellent. And just some final words, uh, Julie, Jonka, do you have any final words? I think picking up on, on what Mayor Boileau just uh, mentioned, again, what we heard a lot from folks we talked to who are in mining is just being close to nature, being close to outdoor activities, which I think people are more conscious of living a healthy lifestyle. And it's easily accessible in Timmins because everything is so close. You can come home from work and hop in your boat and go fishing or go snowshoeing in the winter or cross-country skiing. So that came out really high on the radar from folks who who enjoy that quality of life and that easy accessibility to the social and outdoor activities that are available in our northern community. That is a big deal. And the more I talk to my friends with families, the more important the whole work-life balance is. And if you're not spending two hours just to get outdoors, there is a benefit there. Michelle, any final words? Well, you mentioned two hours of commute time, and that's something that you would not experience in the city of Tibbins. You know, it takes about 15 minutes to get from one end of the city to another, and then uh, two hours outside of the city, and you'd be able to get to work at a few different mines. <laughs> so it definitely speaks to the the quality of life here in the area. I suppose I just want to say again, you know, we we're talking about the actual employment opportunities, but in terms of just the professional opportunity here, the city of Timmins is, is growing. We have growing cultural communities growing uh, community associations. And so in terms of just volunteer opportunities, board positions, committees, you know, there really is the opportunity for someone to live a, a fulfilled life here in terms of finding that balance between work, you know, that personal fulfillment, uh, the arts and culture scene is, is thriving here with the symphony orchestra and, you know, dance academies and gymnastics clubs. So it really allows for a, a well-rounded, holistic life and then that access to the nature. So, you know, I would encourage anyone who might be interested, who might be a little intrigued to take a look, uh, to come for a visit, because it's you really have to see it to believe it. Michelle Boileau, Mayor of Timmins, and Julie Jonka, Executive Director at the Local Workforce Planning Board, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. And turning to the website, Canada releases $1.5 billion critical minerals fund. This is Colin McClelland at northernminer.com. The Canadian government is looking for critical mineral projects to back with a $1.5 billion fund. The Critical Minerals Infrastructure Fund is organized to support clean energy and electrification projects, as well as transportation and infrastructure construction that helps get the minerals to the market. First off, from a $300 million pool, applicants can seek up to $50 million per project, while provincial and territorial governments can apply for as much as $100 million for each project, applications are being accepted until the end of February. Information on funding opportunities and the applicant guide are available online. More from the fund is to be distributed over its seven-year life, the Ministry of Energy and Natural Resources said in a news release on Monday. Ottawa started at a $3.8 billion critical mineral strategy last year to help develop copper, cobalt, nickel, and other metals used in technologies like batteries, wind turbines, and solar panels to fight climate change. So it looks like they're releasing the first $1.5 billion here, and they are taking applications. And we have a quote from Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, who said in a press release, quote, demand for critical minerals is projected to rise exponentially as the global economy continues to shift towards low carbon solutions. Canada will make strategic investments in projects to help enable and grow the sustainable development of these minerals. Pablo Rodriguez also said in a release, quote, the Canada Infrastructure Bank will play an important complementary role by supporting large scale projects as we continue to move towards a net zero future. Pablo Rodriguez is the Minister of Transport, and he continued, Through these investments, we are creating skilled jobs and supporting northern communities for years to come. And speaking of the Canadian government, we have a story from Bloomberg News via Mining.com. 
Canada to carefully review Glencore deal for Texcoal. And it looks like there was a deal on Tuesday that Glencore will pay $6.93 billion for a 77% stake in Texcoal business, while steelmakers Nippon Steel Corp and POSCO, which own minority stakes in Tech Coal Mines, will hold the rest. Canadian Finance Minister Christia Freeland said in a press conference in Toronto that she spoke with Tech Chief Officer Jonathan Price about the deal and will, quote, carefully, end quote, follow Canada's regulatory process in reviewing the takeover. And she continued, quote, our priorities will be, as they always are, protecting Canadian jobs and protecting Canadian headquarters. Of course, environmental issues are very, very important for us, as are the rights of Indigenous people. So finally, I guess there's some relief over at Tech that they can put the story behind them in 2023. It basically dominated the year. Interestingly, when we talked about this story with Cecilia Jamazmi, editor at Mining.com, she mentioned how both CEOs of Tech and Glencore were new CEOs and that there's a lot personally on the line for each of them. So I think it's interesting with Glencore taking the coal, in a sense, it's kind of a face-saving move, you might say, for both, as Glencore kind of gets what they want and Tech doesn't sell the entire company to Glencore. So interesting within that context. Let's continue. First Quantum to halt Panama mine this week if blockade goes on. This is Cecilia Jamazmi on northernminer.com. First Quantum Minerals warned on Monday would have to suspend operations at its controversial Cobre Panama copper mine if an ongoing port blockade continues to impede the delivery of crucial supplies. The Canadian miner said that without shipments arriving at the copper mine's Punta Rincon port, it will run out of supplies for the on-site power plant this week. First Quantum began slowing down operations last week after protests against the company spread to the port with boats blocking the delivery of supplies to the mine. The miner noted it had further reduced production over the weekend and is now down to one ore processing train. The company said in a quote on Monday, First Quantum wishes to reiterate its willingness to open new forms of dialogue to address the concerns of diverse sectors of society. End quote. The company is Canada's largest copper producer and its Cobre Panama mine in production since 2019 contributes almost 5% of the country's GDP. One assumes they're talking about Panama. It also makes up 75% of Panama's exports of goods and has created at least 40,000 jobs directly and indirectly. So there is a blockade at the port and Leonardo DiCaprio is, you know, again, mining at the center of the Mandela here. Leonardo DiCaprio backs Panama protests against First Quantum Mine. This by a staff writer at northernminer.com. Hollywood actor Leonardo DiCaprio has joined Panamanian activists in demanding the shutdown of First Quantum Minerals Cobre Panama Copper Mine. Leonardo, how are we going to power the green transition without copper? Is anybody asking Leonardo this? Let's continue. Since mid-October, thousands of people have been protesting in different parts of the country against the recent approval of Cobre Panama's mining concession. They say they are worried about the potential environmental impacts of the giant operation and demand that the Laurentino Cortizo government repeals Law 406, which governs the concession and grants First Quantum the right to mine copper for 20 years, with the option of adding another 20 years. It also guarantees a minimum annual income of $375 million to the government. In a social media post on Instagram, DiCaprio shared a video titled Panama Te Quiero Verde Shut Down the Megamine, end quote, which was produced by U.S.-based NGO Rewild. The actor also praised the people of Panama for coming together to defend nature and asking the country's Supreme Court to declare the mining project unconstitutional. And here's the quote from the Instagram post. Quote, this area, so this is Leonardo DiCaprio, this area, the protected rainforest Bosque Donoso, lying in the heart of the largest biological corridor in Mesoamerica, is a lifeline for many migratory species. It is critical to the livelihoods and cultures of local and indigenous communities and is home to wildlife that includes macaws, tapirs, monkeys, and jaguars. This activity would have a destructive impact on the surrounding ecosystem, species, and people. A global spotlight can help Panamanians win a critical victory for biodiversity and pave the way for a more sustainable future. End quote. DiCaprio ended his post by asking his followers to sign a petition to halt the mining project operated by Minera Panama, first quantum subsidiary in the Central American country. 
Interesting. Finally, the actor's plea comes just a week before the country's Supreme Court is set to issue a final ruling on two unconstitutional appeals against the miners' new contract, which was renewed on October 20th after months of tense negotiations. Continuing on, Rio Tinto to pay $28 million fine to settle U.S. SEC fraud case. This is Reuters via mining.com. Rio Tinto, one of the world's largest mining companies, agreed to pay a $28 million fine to settle a U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission lawsuit that accused it of fraud in handling a failed investment in a Mozambique coal project. The settlement, disclosed on Friday in Manhattan Federal Court, would end a civil lawsuit filed in 2017 and requires approval by U.S. District Judge Annalisa Torres. Continuing on, UCOR gets $4.3 million federal grant for rare earth element demo plant in Ontario. This is Marilyn Scales at northernminer.com. UCOR Rare Metals has received a $4.3 million grant from the federal government to demonstrate its rapid SX rare earth element separation technology capabilities. The plant is located in Kingston, Ontario, and has a total budget of $8.3 million. The Canadian government support will be used to commercialize UCOR's rapid SX technology, specifically for light rare earths. High-purity samples of praseodymium, neodymium, and praseodymium neodymium compound will be made. The company expects to process between 13 and 15 tons of mixed rare earth carbonates and oxides from sources in Canada and the United States. The funding follows a $4 million grant in June from the U.S. Department of Defense, which was aimed at producing the heavy rare earth element magnet material terbium and dysprosium. And we have a quote. From Pat Ryan, UCOR chair and CEO, who said, quote, China's recent announcement of increased scrutiny over the export of rare earth elements have raised concerns regarding the ongoing availability of these critical materials. The development of an alternative North American rare earth supply chain is more important than ever as the world moves towards the electrification of its vehicle fleet and other green initiatives. The project is set to be completed by March 31st, 2025. And finally, UCOR plans include near-term development of the commercial heavy and light rare earth processing facility in Louisiana, subsequent strategic metal complexes in Canada and Alaska, and the longer-term development of UCOR's 100% controlled Bokan Dotson Ridge heavy rare earth project on Prince of Wales Island in Alaska. The company has a market cap of $42 million. And finally here, Young Mining Professional Scholarship Fund to announce 2023 winners this month. This is Norm Talinsky on northernminer.com. The 2023 Young Mining Professional Scholarship Fund has awarded a total of $210,000 to students pursuing mining-related programs at post-secondary institutions across Canada. While the scholarships are invaluable for students, the 25 mining companies contributing to the fund benefit just as much, if not more, according to Anthony Moreau, director of the fund and CEO of American Eagle Gold. And we have a quote from Anthony Moreau. Quote, this isn't just a scholarship fund, it's a way for mining companies to access the best and brightest young talent from the thousands of applications we receive. If you're a mining company looking to hire summer interns and build relationships with students for eventual full-time employment, participation in the scholarship fund is really a no-brainer. So if you want to learn more about that, go to northernminer.com, look for YMP Scholarship Fund to announce 2023 winners, or just go to ympscholarships.com. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Prices. Let's take a quick look at the bond market for context. The U.S. 10-year Treasury is yielding 4.418%. Let's call it 4.42%, down 0.13% on the week. Turning to the U.K. gilt, down at 4.10%, down 0.2%. So the U.K. 10-year bond has really dropped from, what did we have as a high here? From 4.7% only two and a half months ago. The Italy 10-year bond is at 4.34%. That is down 0.16%, so also coming down from almost 5%. So interesting moves in the bond market. Yields coming down. Turning to precious metals, gold back above $2,000 at $2,006.70 per ounce. 
That is $57 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $23.99 per ounce. That is a dollar and 58 cents higher than last week. So big move in silver there. Platinum is trading at $919.39 per ounce. That is $55 higher than last week. And palladium is trading at $1,081.75 per ounce. That is $103 higher than last week. So precious metals bouncing back. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.80 per pound. That is 14 cents higher than last week. Iron ore is unchanged at $128.95 per metric ton. Aluminum is a penny higher at $1.02 per pound. Lead is $0.05 cents higher at $1.04 per pound. Nickel continues to drop at $7.56 per pound. That is $0.16 cents lower than last week. Tin is at $11.27 per pound. That is $0.11 cents higher than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $15.16 per pound. Lithium falls below $20 a kilogram at $19.87 per kilogram. That is $0.50 cents lower than last week. Uranium edges back higher at $74 even per pound. That is $0.35 cents higher than last week. And zinc continues to climb at $1.17 per pound. That is a penny higher than last week. So overall, metals move higher with grand exceptions being nickel and lithium. So two battery metals, interestingly. Otherwise, it seems to be a falling dollar is propelling metals higher. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome John DeMaio, CEO of Graphics Technologies, to the podcast. I threw everything I could at him as far as questions regarding the green transition, the role of graphite, how important is graphite, how big of a deal would a Chinese restriction on graphite exports be, what is the difference between synthetic and natural graphite, and more. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome back to the Northern Miner podcast, John DeMaio, CEO of Graphics Technologies. John, welcome to the show. Adrian, it's great to be back and I look forward to having our conversation. Well, so am I. I'm really delighted that you are coming back on because, of course, graphite has been in the news. It is, you know, one of these increasing growing list of minerals that China is restricting the exports on. But before we get into that, very timely conversation. Could you remind the listeners, what is the importance of graphite right now in the battery supply chain and just in general? Like, what are we using graphite for and how important is it? Right. No, that's great. And yes, graphite is finally in the news uh, the way it should be. And we'll talk about why that is, or at least from my opinion, why that is. So some basic uses of graphite, we all know pencil leads, not really exciting. It's used for lubricants. It's used in electrodes for steel making, et cetera, where it really is caught the attention of automakers, society, you know, the Department of Energy, et cetera. Graphite is the largest component by mass in an electric vehicle battery, in a lithium ion battery. So, you know, where we talk a lot about the cathode side, let's back up and talk about battery configuration real quick here. There's really only four components that are the major components in a battery, lithium ion battery. That's the positive and negative electrode, the cathode being positive, anode being negative. And then you have the electrolyte, which provides the medium for electrons to go back and forth between those electrodes, and a separator, obviously separate the two. So like I mentioned a minute ago, a lot of the attention has been focused on lithium, cobalt, nickel, manganese, et cetera. Those are all the metals that comprise the cathode of the battery. The anode, since lithium ion batteries were invented in the 70s, the anode has been 95 to 99% graphite. So like I said, it makes up the largest component by mass in a lithium ion battery. There can be 15 times more graphite than lithium in a lithium ion battery. So take, for example, a 
Tesla Model S, where the battery can weigh up to 400 pounds, there could be up to 200 pounds of graphite in there. So it's a major component in the lithium ion battery ecosystem. And as a result, when we talk about as a industry or as a society, the move to electrification, well, electrification equals batteries and batteries, if what I just said made sense, batteries equals graphite and a lot of it. So now turning to China, China has been responsible for about 70% of all the mining of graphite on the planet. And that's primarily because there is a enormous graphite deposit in the Northeast province of China. But even beyond the mining of the material, the processing, which is really what brings it to be able to be used in a lithium ion battery. And we can get into that you know, detail a little bit later. The processing of graphite in the current stage, 95 to 99% of that happens in China, at least at some point in the process. So China has had a lock on graphite processing over the last several decades. And this restriction really does send a ripple through the industry as far as, okay, if China does restrict and if they haven't said whether they will or not or what the rules are around that, but if they do, it's going to create, you know, potential shortages in the electric vehicle battery ecosystem. So that's what's got everybody's attention. Okay, excellent. And I'm so glad you're on again because you can help clarify certain issues because, of course, there is synthetic graphite and then what would you call the other one? Organic graphite? Uh, natural, uh, yeah, natural graphite. Natural graphite, right. And so my understanding just from reading news articles and whatnot on this issue is, to your point, that China for the synthetic graphite does, you know, upwards of 95 percent of almost has a stranglehold, we might say, on the synthetic graphite supply. So in terms of electric vehicle batteries, you know, the things that aren't said in the articles, which maybe you can answer with EV batteries, are they using synthetic graphite or natural? Actually, a great question. They're using both. And uh, that's mm -hmm. a determination made by automaker or battery maker and sometimes by vehicle, you know, vehicle line or whatever. So synthetic graphite, um, and I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. You know, we primarily focus on natural graphite and natural graphite is basically mined uh, from the ground, from hard rock, uh, hard rock mining. Synthetic graphite is actually processed from petroleum product byproducts. So a product called needle coke, which is, again, a byproduct of the petroleum oil and gas process, is then further refined into synthetic graphite. And we refer to the graphite that goes into these batteries as spherical graphite, really, because it, it does take on a near spherical shape. So synthetic graphite is, is a very energy intensive process. And like I said, it's, it's feedstock is a petroleum based product. So very energy intensive. In the recent past, synthetic graphite was very expensive compared to natural. Uh, the reason that it's used is that it does have some beneficial qualities, even over natural graphite. It performs a little bit better in the swelling category. And swelling inside a battery is a bad thing, a very bad thing, right? It can cause cracking and failure, et cetera. So synthetic swells a little bit less than natural, and it allows for a little bit higher energy density. But there's a trade-off, right? There's the carbon footprint to produce it. There's the fact that it's a petroleum-based product. There's high energy intensity. And to some degree, the processing is at such high temperatures that it, it can be a little bit dangerous. So again, there's reasons, performance reasons that battery engineers will use synthetic. And in some cases, Adrian, the anode of a battery can have both synthetic and natural graphite, plus maybe some other, you know, a small percentage of things like silicon oxides, lithium titanium oxides, et cetera. Some additives, again, all configured to maximize performance. And the holy grail for battery performance is fast charging and long cycle life, meaning long range, right? And battery engineers are constantly tweaking with all of the different components, cathode side, anode side, electrolytes, et cetera. Those four components of the battery, there's myriad configurations that battery engineers will, will work with to, again, try to achieve the performance they're looking for. 
And that'll vary from a high-end vehicle down to a, a more of a, you know, a commuter vehicle, so to speak. So we see a wide range of battery chemistries. Now, with that all said, since the 70s, again, 95 to 99% of the anode is graphite. It can be a combination of synthetic and natural. Sorry for the long answer, but that hopefully explains it. No, that's perfect because that's exactly the kind of clarity that I'm looking for over here. Because again, you get a news article and there's just a bunch of questions and who can answer this except for someone who is kind of in the business, so to speak. So by all means, elaborate. So with that in mind, then how big of a problem is it then if the synthetic graphite is not being exported? Because, of course, I think it's Graphite One is in the U.S., for example, and they seem like they're fast-tracking their mine. But what I remember from our last discussion is it's a bit of a moot point because all of this graphite has to be sent to China anyways to be processed. Like, is is that a correct understanding of the situation? And just how big of a problem is this? Yeah, so a couple of things you touched on there. So China not only has, you know, a lock on the synthetic graphite, they also do most of the processing of natural graphite, right? Most of the processing, just real quickly, the three steps of the process are called shaping, purifying, and coating, right? Shaping, I mentioned, just basically forms the particles into spherical shape. Purifying brings the material to a 99.95% carbon content. So it's basically pure carbon. And then the coating process is one for natural graphite, at least, where each particle is is coated so that it resists swelling, right? So that's basically the three steps of the process. Right now, 95 to 99% of that shaping and purifying happens in China because that ecosystem has been built out exactly for it. In fact, we have operations in China. Even though we're a Hong Kong-based company, we operate a processing facility in the Northeast province of China, very close to the mining source. So again, China has a lock on the processing of natural and synthetic graphite. So when you talk about companies like Graphite One, and I know their their mine is not yet operational and it will will take some time to get it there. But right now, mining operations outside of China have a choice, either send it to China for processing or create processing or find processing elsewhere. And that's where companies like ours come in we are building out that midstream, we'll call it midstream processing for graphite here in North America. We're in the process of doing that. You know, we, we planted a flag in Michigan for our first plant, which should be operational hopefully within the next 12 months. Yeah, and we saw this, this wave coming. You know, we don't want to, I don't want to sound like we were overly brilliant, but we made plans to domesticate supply chain before all this push for the IRA and et cetera. We announced in early 22 that we'd be building out the plant. And that just made good sense, a business sense, because we saw the electrification of mobility happening here, the proliferation of automakers and the associated battery factories that have been announced. And yeah, it just made good sense to build support and supply for those factories close to where the point of use was going to be. So again, we've been laying the foundation for this separation you know, from China, let's say before it became fashionable, and now it's only accelerated because of this. So hopefully, again, I know long answers, but hopefully it gives you some, some color around you know, what has to happen here to truly insulate ourselves from any kind of uh, potential supply chain disruption caused by a restriction on exports or other you know, world events that could happen. Indeed. I mean, as you say, you know, it's not necessarily an Einstein move to see, you know, countries, strategic competitors, as they say, like Russia or China might want to restrict commodity exports in order to, you know, as I call it, the West's Achilles heel. Uh, It's it kind of, you know, you don't need to look too far off. to. So as far as then what you're building, I assume it is this the only option so far that's kind of being built out. I assume maybe there are others. I don't know. It sounds like if they have 99%, I mean, and is it all three steps of the process that you're building? Yeah. So great questions all. So as far as as other, I don't like to use the word competitors because there's there's so much demand coming down the line here that I think there's plenty of room for innovation and, you know, multiple players. So uh, Syrah Resources is 
primarily a mining company, but they are building out, we'll call it the midstream capability currently in Louisiana, right? So they have a mine in Mozambique, Africa, uh, very large mine, probably one of the largest outside of, of China. And they are building out, I refer to the, the three-step process as midstream processing, right? So Syrah is building out that capacity in Louisiana. You've got Nouveau Monde, another graphite mining company in Quebec, Canada. They are building out the midstream processing as well. Graphite One has announced that they will be partnering with a, I think it's a Chinese company actually, to do that midstream processing somewhere in Washington state. And then of course it's us. What I will say in that arena of players is that we're the one company that has been doing it for 10 years. So we, all we do is midstream processing. And like I said, we've been commercially producing about 10,000 tons per year of this anode material for the last uh, 10 years. So we're the most experienced player right now that is making headway into the North American space. So hopefully that gives you a, a picture of the landscape. It does a nice comprehensive view of what's happening in North America. And just to follow up, I mean, as far as building out these things, I mean, how hard or challenging is it to build out from your perspective as someone who's actually in the business of doing this sort of thing? How hard is it to build a processing facilities? We know with rare earths, it's kind of easier said than done. Like it's a bit of an art as much of a science. How hard is it? That's a great that's a great point. So, you know, I always refer to what we do as part art and part science. But to answer your question, there are some challenges. There's, you know, uh, economic challenges, regulatory challenges, you know, labor force challenges, resource challenges. And I'll, I'll speak to that in a second here. In a larger sense, in a, at a higher level, that's why processing has been sent offshore to begin with, right? Because it's been either difficult, expensive, or both to build and operate industrial facilities in North America, right? Hence, why everything, quote unquote, everything is made over there, so to speak. So the challenges are, like I said, our process can be somewhat energy intensive. So wherever we choose to locate a facility, we have to make sure there's you know, available power, available workforce, right? One of our plants can you know, require uh, 200 uh, employees, right? So we have to make sure there's, there's uh, adequate workforce, uh, resources. And then, of course, you know, you're building an industrial facility, right? So we operate in certain areas of the process, you know, some some high temperatures, et cetera. So, again, you have to make sure you're in line with the ESG requirements and, of course, you know, state, local and federal, you know, regulations. So, again, it's it's a matrix of decisions that go into any particular siting of any particular plant. And, you know, one of the reasons we chose Michigan, for example, is that, uh, or the site that we chose in, in Warren, Michigan, for a couple of different reasons. One is a, a labor force that's very familiar with automotive already there. And quite frankly, Warren has been a little bit decimated as far as, as automotive and automotive support companies moving out of the town over the last several decades. So we felt good about bringing automotive related plant back in. The site we chose was rehabilitated you know, from a previous abandoned you know, automotive uh, facility. So we brought that back to life, bringing jobs back to the area. And the site actually has a uh, an on-site uh, power plant, which makes the path to operation a lot, uh, a lot quicker. So again, we're, we're looking at, at these things, but in a short answer to your question is, yes, there are, there are challenges, but as an industry and a society, and I, I'll, I'll throw the government in here, too. If we really are serious about domesticating this supply chain, which is really, a, at the end of the day, it's a question of national security. So if we're serious about it, we have to work together. And that doesn't mean, you know, short-circuiting any processes, et cetera. It just means figuring out ways to make things work rather than figuring out reasons to not make things work, if that makes sense. It does. And so we discussed North America. I saw this headline actually right before this interview here. And mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw this then, because I think it just came out an hour ago, but that the European Commission has added synthetic graphite to the Critical Raw Materials Act. And so my question to you is, given like almost to return to our earlier question of like the importance of synthetic versus natural, 
Do you think it's misguided to simply focus on synthetic or do you think that makes sense? Well, I, I don't know if they just focused on synthetic. Maybe they just added it because natural graphite was already on there. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that was probably the case, but I could be wrong. I haven't seen what you're, what you're talking about. But no, I, I think synthetic has has a role to play. You know, if you look at the projections by by folks that are, you know, study this on a, on a consistent basis. If you look at projections for the makeup of batteries, overall batteries moving forward, lithium ion electric vehicle batteries, the projections show that that natural graphite actually increases in percentage of the anode and synthetic comes down a little bit over time and the those other additives creep up in percentage. So where today you may have maybe it's 55% synthetic, 40%, and I'm, I'm just swagging numbers here, but synthetic has a slight edge in, we'll call it anode share over natural right now. And then again, a very small percentage of additives. You look forward 20 years in the projections that I've seen, and natural takes the lead as far as the graphite percentages, and those additives creep up from 2% today to maybe 7, 8% to 10%, you know, by 2040. Is, is one projection that I saw. So again, we're, you know, as a business, as an industry, we're very comfortable that natural graphite is, is the preferred element. It's natural, it's stable, it's inert, it's pulled from the ground, it's recyclable, et cetera. You know, I mentioned what I think are, are some of the, the negative attributes of, of synthetic. Now, what we as a company do, and what I think other natural graphite players do, we're constantly looking for ways to improve the performance of natural. Right. And that has to do with uh, particle size configurations, the coatings that go on there, et cetera. Anything we can do to increase the performance, right, to reduce swelling will all serve as further catalysts to, again, squeeze out, let's say, uh, synthetic from the anode mix. But synthetic has a role to play for sure, you know, especially for now. You know, the, the battery chemistries haven't changed much since, like I said, the 70s. And they're still being perfected, right? It's a constant effort with battery engineers, again, to, to maximize performance. So before there's any wholesale changes, you know, those won't happen overnight. You know, so we talk, you'll hear about silicon replacing graphite. You'll hear about solid state batteries, et cetera. Those are still in an R&D experimental stage. There's still a lot of bugs to be worked out. And that doesn't happen quickly, right? What goes on inside a battery is very, very finicky. It's very precise. It's very, it's down at a molecular level. So, you know, small changes are what we see. Wholesale changes will take a lot of time before they're adopted by, you know, EV makers to put in a battery that's carrying families around. You know, let's, let's just uh, be honest with each other. So, you know, again, synthetic has a role to play, but natural definitely has a role to play from now until who knows when. Right. It's been 50 years, probably be 50 more. Okay, so if you're advising the European Commission, and I understand you haven't seen this, and they haven't added natural, you'd say you should probably have natural on there. Yeah, if they haven't, I'd be really surprised. Um, okay, just to, just out of curiosity, and again, just to understand this relationship as best we can here. So you're mentioning EV batteries, and that's kind of where I want to go, which is, we talk to a lot of experts here in the industry, and I come across a surprising amount of people that are actually quite skeptical of the feasibility of the green transition in terms of, you know, we just a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, Robert Friedland, you know, the, the nickel doesn't exist as far mm. as according to him. Uh, in order to, you know, build out all the batteries. Last week, we had a professor with the Geological Survey of Finland, Associate Professor Simon Michaud, you know, it's just unfeasible, is I believe what he said in the, in as it's currently fashion. I mean, how do you respond to that? And what is your take? Like, is this feasible from your perspective? It's, it's definitely feasible. And it's, it's uh, you know, it, I think it's a matter of sustainability, really. I mean, I think we're finally... As a as a, a species, waking up to the fact that you know we we have to figure out better ways you know to to do the things we we want to do and or need to do, and one of those things is mobility, right? There's a lot of energy spent moving from place to place, moving products from place to place. So you know 
Electrification is going to happen. Now, now, there will be room for things like hydrogen, I believe, personally, especially for your larger modalities, right? But again, you know, we're focused on electric vehicles for right now and for this conversation. So, you know, the battery chemists, that's what they're busy working. So there's, you know, a battery chemistry called lithium iron phosphate right now that doesn't have any nickel in it, right? There's um, research underway for lithium metal, lithium metal batteries. So there are, you know, there, there is the capability to design away from, you know, components that, that may become scarce or are scarce or, and in fact, the amount of nickel, I believe, has been reduced to some degree by, again, by tweaking battery chemistries. And that's where, as a, an industry and a society, I think we, it's encouraging to see things like the mineral strategic partnership, right, where we're recognizing that you know, as a, again, as a species, we will have to, in large part, share the knowledge base. And in, in the case of, of these critical minerals, we may have to share those as well, because again, the naturally occurring minerals like nickel, graphite, et cetera, they exist where they exist, where geology put them, right? So there's not a lot of graphite, for example, in, you know, the U.S., Right. There's there's a significant amount up in Canada. So we, you know, have to work together with other countries to share the resources and eventually share, you know, the uh, the knowledge base so that we can successfully move this forward. So I'm a believer in this. I've been in the energy transition space long before it was called that. So this movement is really the maybe not the definitely not the first one, but it's the one that has really gathered the most momentum where you have society is really willing to adopt, you know, different, uh, you know, electrification. You know, people can argue that there's a uh, range anxiety and, you know, folks don't want to necessarily move to electric, but by and large, there's an acceptance that electric is better. Right. And, and I truly believe that every Super Bowl ad was for an electric vehicle. If you noticed that mm -hmm. last year, so we've accepted it. And then you've got the government that's got behind it. Right. So, you know, electrification, is the bus you get on or you wind up under, right? So regardless of what side of the aisle the politicians are on, I don't think anyone really wants to stand in the way of this, right? Um, they can point out, you know, different aspects of it that, that maybe need to be refined or whatever, you know, more recycling, et cetera. But it's only going in one direction and that's a good thing. So I think not only the US, but when there's a lot of smart people in the woodpile in this industry, They'll figure out how to to work with the um, the resources that we have uh, to make this happen. So whether it's nickel or lithium, you know, there's new ways to to extract lithium coming online, right? Not just classic mining, but you know, from brines, et cetera. So innovation will play a role here, and um, I, I think you know when there's a will, there's a way, so to speak. Indeed. And so you're basically saying, you know, the important thing is that we're on the right path. And yeah, it's not going to be perfect, but we'll have to solve it along the way. But ultimately, this is the path. That's exactly right. That's exactly And thank you for being more concise than I was. <laughs> just uh, the chat GPT summary. of Okay. And just... <laughs> Just to wrap up here then, uh, John, so just to kind of get us back to this China export situation, like what is your understanding of stockpiles in the sense of, you know, that maybe the West has? And, and another way of kind of framing this question is how urgent is this issue should China decide, let's say, you know, things deteriorate after San Francisco here and things deteriorate again, you know, let's say in a couple of months, let's say that they were just to cut things off. How big of a problem would you see that as being? It would create a, a significant ripple. And just real quick on, on what changed, you know, is that to export material for, out of China, you need an export license first. And then it was always required that you needed a permit on a per shipment basis, right? What's changed is that now that permit is being overseen by the Bureau of Commerce, right? So that's kind of the new, the new ripple. And that, that in and of itself creates the uncertainty. Right. That at any point, right, they, they could deny a permit for any kind of, you know, any kind of a shipment. And that would throw a wrench into uh, battery manufacturing that's reliant on any materials that are currently coming from China. So, yeah, if they really turned off the spigot, it would create an immediate ripple you know, in the supply chain of those materials. 
So again, it's just like, and I said this in the, another interview that I had, it's a wake up call to the West to, to move forward with this, you know, if we're serious about domestication, pedal to the metal, because these plants don't spring up overnight. Our plants will take a couple of years to build. The mining operations that need to be uh, set up to meet this demand, if we're not going to use, again, China graphite, those mines have to be brought online. And that doesn't happen overnight. Just ask graphite one, you know, how long it'll be before they're actually producing, you know, battery grade uh, materials. And China, that ecosystem is well developed, right? So there's huge demand for all of these materials, just intramurally, we'll call it. Right. So there's plenty of, of automakers that are 10 to 20 years ahead of, of where we are here uh, in the States. So there's enough demand over there for them to consume everything that's produced in China. So it doesn't even have to be a question of, you know, a, a thumb in the eye of the West or a flex. It could just very well be it's, you know, we're just going to use what we make here inside the country. Uh, or inside the you know the region, and that could happen I- irrespective of any kind of geopolitical tension. So it's just good sense to create diverse upstream supply chain. And I'll just say that's what we've been working on for the last two years. Again, before all this, we'll call it anti-China sentiment. We aligned ourselves with Sierra for their product from uh, Mozambique. We've aligned ourselves with uh, Northern Graphite up in Canada for their material. South Star battery metals from Brazil, Gratomic from Namibia. So we've identified diverse sources outside of China for the raw material. And like I said, we're building out the domestic processing capability so we can have a completely independent supply chain from mine to battery that has nothing to do with China and any other kinds of of logistic interruptions. Just a final follow-up as we wrap up here then. Uh, So you, you're mentioning, I think you said around 12 months or so, you're working on the facilities now. Are you confident you'll have the graphite you'll need then, uh, based on what you're just saying? Uh, like, should you get everything up and running in a year, or is there uncertainty around that? Like, how, how is your understanding of that? Yeah, so the, the plant we're building out, the initial plant will be 15,000 tons of output. And for that, we need about 25,000 tons of input. So yes, I, well, I'm confident we can supply that physical plant. Now, at the same time, right, because 15,000 tons is a, is a significant number. But when you look at the landscape of battery factories coming online in North America alone, you know, again, if, if, if they all come online, there'd be over a million tons of demand for graphite by 2030, let's say. So our plan for 15,000, yes, we will be able to, we'll say, feed that. We're also in the due diligence phase on much bigger facilities in the neighborhood of 100,000 tons. Now for those, you know, by the time we have them built, we have a pathway to bring the necessary feedstock to those. Now that's, you know, that's dependent on mining companies like like Syra and um, Northern Graphite, et cetera, the ones I mentioned, for them to continue on their development path, you know, to uh, produce more and more of the raw material. So again, it's something I, I refer to a lot, which is this this kind of global collaboration, working together to make sure that there's enough raw material to supply, again, the end user, which is automakers and battery makers, and ultimately the consumer, right? That's going to be driving these vehicles. So it's an ecosystem that doesn't currently really exist here in North America. And we're doing our part to help build that out. And we look for collaborative partners, both on the supply side and the demand side, meaning again, our OEM partners, et cetera. So I have conversations almost on a daily with both sides of that spectrum. Again, suppliers and customers. John DeMaio, CEO of Graphics Technologies. Thank you for joining us once again on the Northern Miner podcast. My pleasure. big thank you once again to John DeMaio for a fascinating deep dive into graphite and the important role it really plays often ignored no longer now in the spotlight thank you once again for joining us dear listener and for supporting the show 
Again, the YMP Scholarship Fund can be found at ympscholarships.com. If you want to help out the website, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.